Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As we move beyond the seven letters to seven churches, we also move into a new section of the book of Revelation, making our way into the tribulation period. We invite you to join us now as we continue our study, opening our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Now here's Pastor Phil with our teaching. Revelation chapter 4. As we come to Revelation chapter 4, we come to the final section of the book of Revelation according to the outline, which Jesus himself gave to us in chapter 1 verse 19. Uh, In chapter 1 verse 19 we read, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So Jesus said to John, write the things which you have seen. That would have been the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. We've already talked about that. Then he said, write the things which are. The things of the church, that's chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, and write the things which will take place after this. Actually, the Greek is metatauta, which is after these things. After what things? After the things of the church. After the church age comes to a close. Now, we know the Bible teaches that the uh, church age started at Pentecost, and it will end at the rapture. So from Pentecost to the rapture of the church is the church age. Now, we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1 with these words. After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Actually, verse 1 of chapter 4 opens and closes with the Greek phrase, Metatauta, after these things, which connects chapter 4, verse 1, with chapter 1, verse 19, and tells us that we have entered into the final section of the book, which covers chapters 4 through 22. Now, since chapter 4 can't begin until the church age closes, and the church age doesn't officially close until the rapture, the question is, can we see evidence of the rapture of the church somewhere between the close of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4? And I say yes, absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, we read in verse 1, where John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, that takes us back to something Jesus promised the true and faithful church of Philadelphia. Uh, Back in chapter 3, verse 8, we read these words, where Jesus said to this church, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And then in verse 10, he goes on to say, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, Jesus promised 
his true last day's church, that he would keep her from, or actually the Greek says deliver her out of, the judgment that was coming upon the entire world to test those who dwell on the earth. This, we would say, could very well be a door of deliverance. This open door in verse 8 could very well be a door of deliverance where he was promising the church, not just the church of uh, Philadelphia, but of course Philadelphia relates uh, in a symbolic way to the true last day's church. The church that really believes in Jesus Christ, the evangelical church, the church that has embraced the gospel, etc. That church, the true church, Jesus promises here through this letter to Philadelphia that he would set before her an open door, a door of deliverance, and he would take her or remove her from the earth before the judgment of God was poured out. Uh, There's some interesting verses uh, that I'd like to draw your attention to. Believe it or not, uh, one of the most fascinating comes out of Isaiah chapter 26. If you turn there quickly, Isaiah chapter 26, let's read verses 19 through 21. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dust is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And Jesus gave his disciples, and of course all of us who are his disciples, a promise in John 14, starting in verse 2, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places is the Greek. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven. He's preparing a place for his church, for his bride. When that place is completed, he will come and get his church to bring us to be where he is at. Now, that's a very important point. So we see that John looked and first of all saw a door standing open, a door of deliverance. But secondly, John says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Now, that's interesting. Because there are two passages in the New Testament that are classic rapture passages. Let's read them together. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 16, where Paul said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain upon the earth, as the idea, shall be Caught up, the Greek is harpazo, but in the Latin Vulgate it's rapturo, which we get the word rapture from. And so those who are alive and remain shall be caught up or raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. A lot of people try to say that these verses are simply talking about the second coming. But as we've pointed out before, if you compare all these verses together side by side, you realize that the verses that deal with the rapture, Jesus is coming for his church. 
And he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He comes in the clouds and catches us up off of the earth to meet him in the clouds. And, you know, when he comes uh, at the second coming, he's coming with his church all the way back to the earth to establish his kingdom. So there are two different occurrences. Another classic uh, rapture passage will be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you can read the whole context. I'll just draw your attention to verse 52 where Paul said, we shall be changed and so on, go through this instant metamorphosis in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Talking about the rapture of the church. Now, the church has been mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of this book. But suddenly now she disappears from the earth and we will not see her again in the book until we see her as the bride of Christ coming in chapter 19, returning with the Lord to the earth to establish his kingdom. So the first three chapters, the church is all over those chapters, especially chapters two and three, because John was dealing with the things that are Well, we're still in the church age. And so chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, the number seven is complete. And in a very broad way, symbolically, uh, those seven literal churches in Asia Minor that lived you know, and existed 2,000 years ago represent all of the church age from, from Pentecost to the rapture. So we see that in the first three chapters, the church is everywhere, starting in chapter 4. She really disappears from off the earth. She doesn't emerge again until she is seen coming with the Lord, riding white horses dressed in white robes, returning to the earth to establish his kingdom. I like what J. Vernon McGee said in his commentary. He said, from here on, you will not find the word church mentioned. But now the church goes off the air. There is no mention of it. It has gone off the air because it went up in the air. It was caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. The church has gone to heaven. That is what has happened to it. When the church arrives at its destination in heaven, it loses the name by which it was known in the world, and other terms are used to describe it. She is no longer a church. She is a bride, a bride adorned for her husband. The apostate organization, which bears the ecclesiastical terminology and continues on in the world, is not hereafter given the title church either, but the frightful label of the harlot. The late Dr. George Gill said years ago in a seminary class, there are going to be some churches which will meet the next Sunday after the rapture and they won't be missing a member. They will all be there. McGee said, why? Because they are the church of Laodicea. That is, it professes to be Christian, but lacks reality, end quote. So the scene now shifts to heaven in chapter 4, where the church, once seated with Christ in heavenly places spiritually, is now seen safely seated with Christ in heaven, in heaven literally before the judgment of God is poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world. So once again, verse 1, John said, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which, voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after these things. Immediately, 
And might I just insert here in the, in the twinkling of an eye? I was in the spirit, John says, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So John was taken instantaneously in the spirit to heaven, which allowed him to see things firsthand as they really happened. This is not a vision. He has been transported literally to heaven where he's got a now a balcony seat to see all of these things transpire, all of these events as they were actually happening. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, you have to understand that time is a physical dimension. You know, we, we used to think we lived in a three-dimensional universe, height, width, depth, and so on. Uh, Einstein proved it's actually four dimensions. Uh, time is a dimension. And so time is a part of our physical universe. When God took John in the spirit, he removed him from the physical universe, put him in the realm of the spirit. In the realm of the spirit, time does not really exist per se. In the realm of the spirit, or from God's perspective in heaven, as he sees this world, creation and all, he sees the Garden of Eden, he sees the culmination, all as it's happening right in front of him. It's kind of like us watching a parade from ground level, we only see that part which is in front of us. That's kind of like how we view life, how we view time, history. If you could get up in a helicopter and look down on that parade, you could see the beginning and the middle and the end all at the same time. That's kind of how God views creation. And John has, taken, has been taken out of the realm of the physical and placed in the realm of the spiritual. And so now he has a balcony view of things that are going to... For John, they're happening right in front of him. For us, they're still future. All right? This is the same thing that God did with Paul, by the way. Uh, remember the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I know a man in Christ who... Talking about himself, really... I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. Paul says, I don't know if I was alive and had a vision or if I was dead and actually went to heaven. He said, I don't know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul said, I was taken in the realm of the spirit up into heaven and I heard things and no doubt saw things. It would be unlawful for me to try to describe. He says it. he calls it the third heaven. Why the third heaven? The Bible teaches there are three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. It's our atmosphere. The second heaven is where the planets are, the, you know, in the, in the universe and so on. The third heaven is just a way that Paul and the other uh, writers described the realm where God lives, or the spirit realm. What we would think of as heaven, you know, when we die someday, we're going to go to heaven. That's the idea. And so when Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven, he was simply saying, I was caught up to the realm where God dwells, where the angels dwell. I was caught up to that place that someday we're all going to be going as believers in Christ. But he says in verse 2, as he was caught up in the spirit into heaven, he saw a throne set in heaven. The key word in this chapter is throne. It's used 14 times. In fact, throne is a key concept throughout the entire book of Revelation. It's used 46 times throughout the entire book. Why did God speak of his throne so often in this book? Let me tell you why I think he did. Because there are coming upon this earth such horrendous things. 
such cataclysmic judgments and events that if God did not keep reminding us that through it all he was still on the throne, we might be prone, of course, we're going to be out of here. But even in, in, in life right now, sometimes we are prone to think when adversity comes our way that God is not on the throne, that things have kind of spiraled out of his control. That's not true. God is still on the throne. No matter how rough things get, no matter how many times we think because of our circumstances, he's, he's not on the throne. He is. Well, how could he be on the throne? Look what's happening in my life. Look, we have to cling to the truth that all things are working together for our good because we love God and are called according to his purpose. doesn't say we always see things working together for our good. We know it by faith because that's what God has said. But I think God keeps repeating the fact that he is still on the throne all throughout this book because the generation that's going to be going through this thing who are not saved at the time of the rapture but get saved during the tribulation period and run to the store and get themselves a Bible and begin to study Revelation, they're going to have to be reminded over and over again, look, it's going to get bad. It's going to go from bad to worse. But through it all, remember, I'm still on the throne. I'm still on the throne. Uh, I'm going to make this thing come to an end at one point, and my son is going to return and establish a kingdom that will never end. I want you to also notice in verse 2, though, how many are on this throne? One. One sat on the throne. Of course, this throne, I believe, belongs to God the Father. And the reason I say that is because the Son approaches this throne in chapter 5, verse 6. And in chapter 4, verse 5, the Spirit is pictured before the throne. So this is the throne of the Father. And notice, there is one on the throne. There is one king, and I don't see a queen here. I don't see a queen. I mean, I don't see Mary anywhere sitting there as the queen of heaven. And I'm not putting her down. She was a wonderful lady. I love Mary. I think she is absolutely appalled if she even knows what some people have done in the way of elevating her to a place of worship. She would be appalled if she doesn't already know that. I mean, she was a wonderful, godly woman, and God used her incredibly. And, and we all love Mary. But, you know, as we see the early church, after Jesus ascended back to the Father in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 1, I believe, she is praying with the saints. The saints are not praying to her. They're praying with her. Nowhere in the New Testament is she ever venerated or worshipped. She is never called co-redemptrix, co-mediatrix, co-anything with Christ. He's everything. And so I don't see anywhere the Queen of Heaven, as the Roman Catholic Church has dubbed Mary, uh, she's nowhere to be found uh, is in the way of sitting on God's throne. Well, again, verse 2, one sat on the throne, verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. One of the things you have to be conscious of as you read this, you're, you're trying to see heaven through the eyes of a first century man. Now, you know, us who have been given the benefit of Star Wars and, and all, the, uh, all of the, um, the special effects that we you know, have taken for granted in the movies, uh, maybe we could better relate what John saw in heaven if we had been there. But we have to understand that he's trying his best 
to communicate something that is obviously goes beyond his his ability to fully communicate it. He sees God on the throne, but notice he sees no form. And he describes God as these these precious stones. Not that God is made of precious stones. He says the one on the throne was like a jasper and sardius stone. I believe what John is trying to describe is God who is light. He doesn't really see a form. He sees different hues of light. Well, the Bible says God is spirit. So he has no form really. And he dwells in unapproachable light, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. It's interesting, though, he describes these two stones, which symbolize what he sees emanating from this throne. The first one is a jasper stone. And we read from Revelation 21, verse 11, that it is clear, as clear as crystal. And next he describes the sardius stone which is blood red in color. So what I believe is in view here is the purity and redemption of God. Of course, blood red signifying the color of obviously blood, which was the instrument of redemption. Of course, Jesus Christ shed his blood to purchase our salvation, to redeem us back to God. The uh, jasper stone being clear uh, as crystal signifies God's purity. We read in John, 1 John 1, 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, pure light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolutely pure. He has no moral imperfection in him at all. Now it's interesting that these two stones are mentioned because as you look at the high priest breastplate in the Old Testament, It had 12 stones on it. Each stone represented one of the 12 tribes. The first one was the Sardius stone, and it represented the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, correct? We also see the Jasper stone, which was last on the high priest breastplate, and it represented the tribe of Benjamin, whose name means the son of my right hand. So you have the first and last stone. As we open the book of Revelation, who calls himself the first and the last all the time? The Lord Jesus Christ, correct? He's the first and last. It's interesting how the whole book in some way relates to him because he is the, um, the, the Sardius stone in the sense that he is the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15 tells us he's also the son of God's right hand. In Psalm 110, verse 1, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we see how these, in some ways, point to Jesus. There's also a rainbow around the throne. Not a half rainbow like we're used to. The Greek is a full circular rainbow. In heaven, nothing is incomplete. Everything is complete. But what does the rainbow remind us of? It's the first time we see a rainbow in the Scriptures. God's promised to know, but not just to know it to all creation, right? That he would never again uh, judge the world with a flood. Now, before you get real happy about that, read the fine print. The next time it's going to be with fire. But, so before you breathe that sigh of relief, read a little farther. However, why is the rainbow in heaven? Well, we're going to see it coupled with the thunderings and the lightnings and so on, which are a symbol of God's judgment. It's interesting that uh, thunder and lightning usually precede a storm. 
Well, what's happening here is they are preceding a storm of judgment coming upon the earth. But the rainbow there present also tells us that even as God did not destroy the entire human race in Noah's day, he left a remnant. He is not going to destroy the whole human race. There's going to be, after it's all said and done and God's judgment is poured out, Jesus is going to be returning to establish a kingdom on the earth. And many people are going to enter into that kingdom. All of us who are redeemed, some who are still living upon the earth, who have become believers, they will enter into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. They will marry, have children. Those children will grow up during the millennial kingdom and repopulate the earth. It's going to be a time of great joy and blessing. We're not going to see evil and injustice anymore. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be reigning visibly upon the earth, and we as His church will be reigning with Him throughout the world. And so it's going to be a glorious time, time when... Uh, when we're not going to see carnivorous animals, you know, the lion will lay down with the ox, the child will play by the adder's hole and not get hurt. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. Day by day.